Welcome to the You Can Make It So podcast, episode number 36. Thank you for joining us for this episode, and thank you also for the support of our podcast and the many positive comments that we receive, and for sharing and recommending it with others. Uh, this past summer, we began a great new tradition of sorts in our podcast, and that's welcoming guests, and we have received such a great feedback about that, that this fall we're continuing to do so, welcoming one or two guests a month. So let's get after it and let's make it so. I'm very excited to be welcoming Alan Weiss. Alan is one of those rare people who can say he's a consultant, speaker, and author, and mean it. His consulting firm, Summit Consulting Group, Inc., has attracted clients of over 500 leading organizations, organizations like Hewlett-Packard, GE, Mercedes-Benz, the Times Mirror Group, the Federal Reserve, and even the New York Times Corporation. He's uh, typically speaks at about 20 keynotes at large major conferences, and he's been a visiting faculty member at numerous higher learning institutions, including an appointment as an adjutant professor at the Graduate School of Business at the University of Rhode Island. He's a prolific publisher, which includes over 500 articles and 60 books, including his bestseller, Million Dollar Consulting, now in its 30th year and his sixth, sixth edition. His career has taken him to over 60 countries and 49 states, and today he's with us. And so thank you for being with us on the You Can Make It So podcast. Happy to be here. Um, before we get uh, going into things, uh, just want to ask you about how you started, uh, your path to becoming a consultant, speaker, and author. How did your career begin? Well, when I got out of undergraduate school, I went to work for Prudential Insurance, uh, and uh, I didn't know what to do with my life. And I was recruited by a training and consulting firm in Princeton, New Jersey, and I spent 11 years there, uh, traveled the globe. This is before the internet, of course. Uh, and I rose to the number two position in the company. I, I uh, reported to the owner. Uh, and then I was recruited to be president of a behavioral consulting firm in Rhode Island. So we moved from New Jersey to Rhode Island. And uh, this was in, uh, in 1984. And 15 months later, I was fired because the owner and I just despised each other. And so in 85, um, I decided to go out on my own. And uh, my wife said, fair enough, but just get serious, you know, and we had kids in private school and not a lot of money in the bank. And I said to myself, how do I differentiate who I am from another 250,000 independent consultants? And I decided that uh, there were two things that were important. One, this was a relationship business and I had to learn to market myself. And second, I would never, ever, ever charge again for a seat in a class, for a person, for an hour, for a day. I would only charge based on value. Uh, and I went on on my own. And in fact, it, by the 1990s, I had pioneered really value-based fees for the consulting profession. And so I never looked back and here I am today. I have the strongest solo consulting brand in the world. Absolutely. When, uh, when any of us get started, uh, we always have moments that we look back upon and we might consider them funniest moments, uh, thing, occasions that we uh, learned a great deal from. Uh, some might call them mistakes, others might just call them uh, opportunities to learn. When you look back, what are some takeaways that you have from your early days? Well, I can give you a, a couple of examples. You know, one is that when I was uh, out of my own there, um, I said to my wife, I'd better get an office. And she said, why are you going to get an office? And I said, well, I'm on my own now. She said, well, why can't you work out of home? She said, look, people aren't going to come to see you. You're going to go see them. I'll tell you what, if it turns out you need an office, get one. So I did not get an office. 
And um, it turns out that by not having an office and an assistant and rent utilities and so forth and so on, insurance, um, over about um, what, uh, 12, about 20 years, I saved $450,000, which is exactly the amount of money that it cost me to put both of my kids through private school from kindergarten to undergraduate school. So that was when I realized quite clearly that um, I could operate lean and mean. The second thing is uh, when I put my first proposal in at Merck, I was introduced to some people at Merck because I had known them from my job in Princeton. It was $14,000. And I, I went to the buyer's office and I pushed this proposal across the desk and I began to perspire heavily and I saw these flashing lights and I thought I was having a heart attack. But what had happened was I was holding my breath. And when you hold your breath, you start to see flashing lights and you perspire. And the buyer took about 60 seconds and he pushed it back at me and he said, this is fine, let's go ahead. And I said to myself, it should have been 35,000. And so I realized right there that I was underpricing. The third thing I'll tell you is that somewhere near the end of the first or second year, I remember that we needed about $68,000 to meet our expenses for the end of the year. And I went down to another buyer at Merck and uh, I had a proposal with three options. The third option was $68,000. And when I walked into the office, he said to me, you know, Alan, we've looked this over and we decided we'll take option three for 68,000. I said, well, that's just great. I said to him, do you mind if I call my office uh, for messages? He said, no, take any of the phones out there. Well, these were cubicles. And so there was no privacy. And so I picked up a phone on an empty cubicle and I called my number. And of course, my wife picked up and I said, um, this is Alan. I'm checking messages. And my wife says on the other end, uh, how did you do? How did you do? Did you get? I said, oh, things, things are very well. And she said, you got it? I said, yes, that's true. And she said, how much was it? Which option? I said, it was the year uh, we graduated college. No, I said, it was the year we graduated. And she says, grammar school, high school, college? And I said, college. And she said, 68. I said, well, thank you for the messages. And I hung up, right? So, you know, those were the early years. <laughs> you know, um, in, in your book, um, Getting Started in Consulting, um, you uh, you tell this story, which is uh, a story that, that I, I very much uh, enjoy. You say, uh, I flew to London for a meeting. I walked off first class and I was met by a guide who took me through customs to my limo, which took me to my hotel where I was pre-registered and shown immediately to my room. After unpacking, I went to the dining room for dinner. Over my cocktail, I spotted someone checking in who was to be at the meeting. I invited her to join me since she said that she had come from the same city. That meant we were on the same plane. I found out, however, that she was in coach. She had no assistance and she had taken a taxi. She arrived at the hotel 90 minutes after I did. Count up all of those 90 minutes that I've talked a lot about. And in it, I say, don't leave money on the table. But I also say, don't leave time on the table either. Why is that? Well, wealth is discretionary time. Wealth is not money. And some, so many people chase money and erode their wealth. But you have to spend money to make money. Uh, when I was fired, I bought a $2,000 suit. Now, this is 1985. Uh, and I used limos and I flew first class. And my wife said to me, can we really afford this? And I said, listen, if I am going to deal with senior level people, I am not arriving perspired or late or rumpled. I have to look like their peer and act like their peer. So I'm going to go in feeling good about myself. And she said, okay, that makes sense. And I said to her, one sale pays for this forever. 
And so that's an abundance mentality. It's not about how much money you have in the bank. It's about your mentality. And a poverty mentality is somebody telling me, well, I fly coach because I'm saving $3,000. And of course, I get there just at the same time first class does. The point of the story you just read is that you don't get there at the same time first class does. You get to your hotel 90 minutes later. Uh, and so what I help people with in my coaching worldwide now, and, I'm, and basically I coach consultants and entrepreneurs and boutique firm owners globally. And what I do in my workshops and my videos on my podcast and so forth is I help them understand how to live a good life. And that's why we're here. So uh, I'm not making fun of this woman. I'm simply pointing out that he was an, a very intelligent, successful person who never let go of her scarcity mentality. Right. Some, some people might push back on that a little and say that, uh, well, time and money are, are not equal resources. Would you say that that's true or false or are they even resources? Well, they're not resources. And people who say that just don't get it. Uh, time and money are priorities. They're not resources. So we all have the same amount of time every day, 24 hours. And buyers and businesses uh, have money, but people confuse money with budget. See, budget is pre-allocated money. But a buyer, if you're not dealing with human resources or learning and development people, these people can't buy. I mean, HR really means hardly relevant, you know. Uh, if you're dealing with real executive buyers, they can reallocate money. What you have to prove to them is investing in you gets a greater return than where the investment is now. It's as easy as that. And so if you look at money and time as priorities that can be reallocated, both in your own life and others' lives, now you have a completely different dynamic to deal with. So instead of when a buyer says, well, we have no budget, and you pack up your tent and go home, you say, well, I know you have money. You know, the lights are on, you're paying the mortgage. Why don't we talk about the return I can give you? No, let's... Uh... Let's keep going on that. And um, in, in your foundational book, A Million Dollar Consulting, you, uh, you offer many impactful, helpful, practical concepts, very much along the same line of what you've just been talking about. And one of them that stands out for me a great deal is this. You invite people to focus on the big picture and to not let your job get in the way of your career. Can you unpack right. that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I'm a professional speaker, as you pointed out in the introduction. And there's an old story, a stale, hackneyed story among professional speakers. It goes like this. You come upon a mason and you say to the mason, what are you doing? And the mason says, I am laying bricks. You go to a second mason on the same job and the second mason responds, I'm building a cathedral. And so the point of this, this dumb story is that the first person has a job and the second person has a career, right? So they're more engaged. But there's a third mason. And when you talk to the third mason and say, what are you doing? That mason says, I'm bringing people closer to God. That's a calling. And if you have a calling and you have passion, my calling is to help people achieve a better life for themselves than they ever imagined. If you have a calling and you're passionate, it's not work. It's what you do every day. That's why the whole concept of retirement is stupid these days. And so... Um, People look at a job. You might get a job when you first get out of school. I did at Prudential. And then you could look at a career. And I spent 11 years at this consulting firm in Princeton thinking, well, maybe I'll become president. And then I said, well, so what? This still isn't doing it for me. And then when I got fired, I said, look, I'm not going to work for an idiot ever again. You know, how do I fulfill myself? That's your calling. And that's the difference. And people can't be afraid to seek a calling. If I may, I'll tell you one other thing. People get up in the morning with one of two dispositions. They get up in the morning and they say, what a beautiful day. What an opportunity. I wonder who I can help. 
So you're never bashful to talk to people. But other people get in the, up in the morning and say, oh, God, I got bills. I got problems. I, I don't know if I'll get this proposal. It's a long, slow crawl through enemy territory. So the first person is eager to reach out to people because that person's giving. The second person who's trying to get money is reluctant to reach out to people because they're trying to take. And so the question really is up to you. You know, which mentality do you want to have? Absolutely. You know, speaking of mentality, um, currently, you know, we've just gone through a period of great change in our history. Um, you know, we have experienced a, a period of time in which adaptation was required like no other. Uh, living through the, the pandemic uh, has caused so many different things to, to uh, shift. And one of the workplace phenomenons going on right now, a bit of a, a shift, is this concept of quiet quitting. I'm sure you've heard of it. And uh, quiet quitting is, is, I think, a bit of a challenge to industry leaders and to employers in general. What opportunities or what pitfalls do you think that quiet quitting offers to us? Well, it, it, aside from being the latest, you know, movement du jour, if quiet quitting were real, it produces or provides a huge threat because you have people on the job who are not doing their job, which is an abdication of accountability. Uh, I remember walking through a large company with the general manager and I said, how are things? And he said, not so good since Joe retired. I said, Joe's sitting over there. He said, I didn't say he left. I said, he retired. <laughs> so that was quiet quitting 20 years ago. And uh, my feeling is this, that uh, this great resignation we talk about was really an existential jailbreak. It wasn't a great resignation. It was people who wanted to get away from uh, organizations and particularly bosses. People don't leave organizations, they leave bosses. They left in, because they weren't being recognized for their talents. And if you look at the literature for the past 20 years, money isn't a motivator. What motivates people is being recognized for their talents and being allowed to apply their talents on the job. And when you don't allow those talents to be applied and you don't recognize the talents, people get bored or they get unhappy or they get frustrated and they leave. So quiet quitting. Organizations can easily prevent that. And you prevent it in one of two ways. A, you give people the opportunity to apply their talents, to innovate, you give them the freedom to fail, and you give them recognition and you talk to them and you let them talk to you. That's number one. Number two is you create metrics for accountability. And you say, you know, most job descriptions are crap because they're nothing but tasks. Job descriptions should be outcomes, results. Here's what you're responsible for creating. And here's how we'll measure that progress. Is this agreeable to you? And if somebody buys off, then that's their accountability. And if they don't meet their accountability, if they try quiet quitting, take them out of their misery and actually fire them. <laughs> That's very well put. That's very, very well put. I'll tell you something about the great resignation. You know, I'm an innovator. There are three kinds of innovation. My first book was on innovation. I'll tell you something about this great resignation stuff. It's an opportunity. And the opportunity is for organizations to understand that they can operate in a much more streamlined manner. And that's how they should look at this, not get desperate for talent. I'm walking into, I walked into a hotel the other day and the three people on the desk didn't know what the hell they were doing. This is a huge, major hotel chain. They didn't know what they were doing. And it, either they didn't have the skills to know how to do it, or they weren't trained at all. But in either case, you have to come up with things like some hotels do, where you just use your smartphone to check in, and you don't need people at the desk. So the the, the worst thing it's the worst thing than having nobody present is having somebody incompetent present, right? Because they represent ultimately the brand that 
that you're about. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a car guy, and I had my car. Uh, we, we have a Bentley, among other things. And the guy up at Bentley profusely apologized for something. And I said to him, this is a flat tire. It's not your fault. And he said, yes, but I represent the brand. Now, that's the kind of employee you need. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, Alan, I'm um, always amazed when I, when I um, see yet another book come out from you, when I see yet another article that you've written, when I talk to uh, individuals in our industry and they, they, they mention the influence that you've had on them. Um, you are, um, you know, some people like the word busy. Some people don't like the word busy, but you are, you're busy. You have many different things that you are involved in. Um, how do you like to just let off some steam and relax a little bit? And how do you maintain a somewhat healthy approach uh, to that concept of work-life balance? Well, first, let me point out, I'm not busy. I'm productive. There you go. Uh, right. So there's an important difference. I'm very productive. I work about 20 hours a week. Uh, you know, when I'm not delivering a lecture or I'm not delivering a, a workshop or an experience, I work about 20 hours a week. Uh, for example, you are the last thing I'm doing today, and it's now 10.15 Eastern time in the U.S. And so after this, I'm done on a Friday. So I have I have 100 hobbies. You know, I like fast cars. Uh, I'll play Frisbee with my dog. Uh, I, about 10 minutes from my house, I have a house I rent out only because there's a carriage house behind it, which I keep, where I have a huge, huge electric train set. And all the things I couldn't afford as a kid. And so I'll go over there and play with the trades. You know, I'll smoke a cigar, have some scotch, read a good book in my library over here. Uh, my wife and I both love to travel. Uh, we just got back from uh, Hawaii. My wife went back to L.A. to see our, one of our grandchildren. Uh, next week, we go to New York. At the end of September, we're going to Australia, to Brisbane. And at the end of November, we're going to London. Uh, in April, we'll be in Paris. And so these things just thrill me and fill my life. But, you know, you, you can't help others unless you help yourself. That's the oxygen mask principle. That's what they tell you. Put your own mask on first. And so that's what I do. And that's what I preach to others, healthy selfishness, really. So because I have all these interests, I'm, my battery's constantly charged. And, um, you know, one of the problems in working in organizational life is that you have severe restrictions on your time. Now, working from home and hybrid working has been a big boom to that. And employers should see the benefits of letting people have this valuable time for themselves, so long as they meet their objectives. But what does Elon Musk do? His, his stupidity at work, and I'm, you know, Musk has done a lot of interesting things, but he's done some dumb things. He demands that people be at work in the office for 40 hours a week. That's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. It's just stupid. And it's stupid because it's got no connection to productivity or reality. It's just an arbitrary bureaucratic rule. And I guess when you're the richest guy in the world, you think you can get away with that, but we'll see. You know, one of... Um... You, you, you touch on on this very early on this very this point that you're making right now you touch on it very early on in one of your books that uh, came out um, I'm, I'm going to say over a decade ago uh, called life's uh, life storming um, and in it uh, you you speak about uh, the the practical approach to redesigning your life uh, by ensuring that you have friends behaviors beliefs that move you each day closer to your goals in, with the individuals that, that I coach, the companies that I consult with, I often say to them, goals gain, but habits hold. Can you tell me about a habit that you have that you see as a key pin or a linchpin to the productivity that you're talking about? 
Sure. And let me just make it clear. Uh, Life Storming was co-written with Marshall Goldsmith. Give him credit, a good buddy of mine. And it was, it's about two years old. It's from John Wiley and Company. Uh, I think that a, a key habit that I have is self-discipline. I hold myself accountable. Uh, and a lot of people can't do that. They need colleagues, which is fine. You know, I mean, I have growth cycles where I put people together. They hold each other accountable in my community. Uh, but I hold myself accountable. And so um, I, I never miss a deadline. Uh, I never miss an obligation. Uh, and I don't take on their four obligations and accountabilities I can't meet. Uh, and I practice what I preach. You know, I just ended a three-year term as presidency of the ballet here in Providence. And when I began with it three years ago, uh, survival was a real question. Uh, we had no money. We were overextended. And uh, on top of that, then the pandemic hit. Uh, and I said to them, I will accept the presidency. I wasn't even a member of the board. If you agree with me that I'll run this place as a business. And three years later, we have a million dollars in the bank and no debt except for our mortgage. And we're hailed as one of the finest artistic and cultural organizations in New England. And so you have to have the discipline and accountability to get things done. And when you have that, you instill it in others. Instilling things in others um, is, is something that you, you touch on also in your book, Three Score and More. Um, in it, you, you say something that has come to resonate very, um, very much for me now as I enter a different stage of my life. You say that just because you're over 50, it doesn't mean you're finished. So I'm very glad to, to hear that uh, for myself now. Um, if someone was considering a transition in their life, what should they keep in mind? You know, my trainer this morning, I work out three times a week, told me that, you know, I'm in remarkably good shape uh, for, for someone my age, but even if for, it could be the younger people. And I read the New York Times yesterday that I'm actually older than the average lifespan in the United States. <laughs> so let's hope I finish this interview, right? Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I think it's important. The reason I wrote Three Score and More is, you know, women said very correctly that, you know, you can't ignore women. You have to give them equal opportunity or you're eliminating, you know, half the talent in the country. And minorities say the same thing. And they all say this absolutely correctly. Well, the same applies to people as they get older. And ageism is horrible. There were no parades about ageism. You know, you can have a parade about gay pride or Latin pride or whatever, but no parades about ageism. There are no causes about ageism, but you, you, we can't eliminate these people who have tremendous talent. And so uh, I think we have to be careful not to uh, even subconsciously write off people because they're above a certain age. And I think we have to, if you really want diversity, you can't lose your institutional historians. You can't lose your people who have a perspective well beyond what other people have. And so for me, it's not just the good old days because they were then, but for me, there are lessons we can learn uh, that were extraordinarily important. You know, there's a big difference between uh, how effectively we administered the polio vaccine uh, and how difficult it's been with the COVID vaccine. Uh, but, you know, people uh, are worried today about COVID and they're worried about Ukraine and they're worried about climate, you know, in our schools, we lived through the threat of nuclear annihilation. We had air raid drills where we put our coats over our heads to protect against nuclear fallout. Now, as silly as that seems in retrospect, you know, uh, people were crying in the halls of my high school during the Cuban Missile Crisis when it came damn close to somebody hitting the red button. I don't think either Khrushchev or Kennedy knew what the hell they were doing. And, and we got through that. And so when you have that kind of perspective, you know, my father jumped into enemy guns as a paratrooper in New Guinea during the Second World War. 
So perspective is important. And so we need to embrace everyone. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, when I walk into a room, I own it. You're going to have to prove me wrong. You know, there's a there's a great movie. Uh, Robert De Niro is in it. The movie's called Intern. I'm, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but uh, it's about you know a person that um, you know I'd worked for the phone book company, I think it was, uh, and uh, he quote unquote retired, but he wasn't ready to retire, so he went and became a, an intern at a tech company, and uh, it was amazing. Uh, first of all, that the way that some of the interview questions were were set up, it was not you know, established for someone at his stage of life. But the other thing was the wisdom that he brought was not the wisdom of the latest fad and technology, but it was the wisdom of life. And it's just amazing to see the impact that he was having on people that were well half his age and, uh, and, and the wisdom that he brought and uh, the legacy that he was able to give. And, and let me let me state the converse, too, because a lot of my coaching clients who are young, you know, I have people of all generations of my coaching program, they'll tell me, well, you know, I'm in my 20s and I'm not sure people will listen. And I have to reinforce for them the fact that what people want is value. And, and 95% of buyers are not looking at your age or your color or your gender or your sexual uh, orientation. What they want is value for their organization. And if you can provide that, you're going to be in good shape. So we can't write anyone off. And and in this world today, we need all the value and all the expertise we can get. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a, maybe a, a good way to, to talk about, um, I'm not sure if this is your latest book or not, because I, I, as I say, I have a hard time keeping up with, <laughs> with your books, to be honest with you. But uh, your your book, Your Legacy is Now. Um, you, uh, you say, life is not a search for meaning from others. It's about the creation of meaning for yourself. Can right. You that? Right. Well, uh, I love writing your legacy is now because I found that people use all the wrong metrics. They keep comparing themselves to others. Uh, there's tremendous normative pressure to compare yourself to others. And sometimes, you know, parents exacerbate this. Oh, you did a great job on the test. Of course, not as good as your sister did. You know, And you say, oh, my God, I'm not good enough. Yeah. Uh, and so... It's not a question whether you can ski down the, 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 the Black Diamond Hill the first time you go skiing. Uh, it's a question of whether you enjoy skiing. Uh, we all have our strengths and we all have things we'd rather stay away from. Uh, you know, I'm not interested in eating kale ever. I don't care, you know, what you tell me. And <laughs> But I love a good martini, so stop telling me, you know, vodka is not good for me. I think that um, uh, we tend to look to others for guidance instead of having faith in ourselves that we can find our own way. And I'm not saying never to listen to anyone else, but I am saying that when you listen, you have to take that uh, in conjunction with what your own beliefs and feelings are. You know, you have to think about, are you trying to bring people closer to God or whatever? So uh, that's why I wrote that book. And I tried to give people some relief from this almost subconscious feeling that you have to conform with what other people are doing. Well, we're, we're uh, running up against the clock, so I have uh, just one more question for you. The next uh, five to 10 years, what are you focusing on? I'm focusing on uh, constantly trying to fulfill myself so that I can help others more. Uh, you know, I have a phrase, I'm constantly surprised at how stupid I was two weeks ago. And, uh, you know, I'm about to shorten that to how stupid I was two hours ago at the rate of change today. Uh, but I'm constantly trying to find, you know, new excitement, new things to do and new things to share. 
you know, I, I have a book that's just come out, uh, co-written with Lisa Lardin called uh, Masterful Marketing. I have a book coming out in December, co-written with um, Gene Moran called Million Dollar Influence. And then I have a book on my own that I've written that'll come out early next year called A Sentient Strategy. I've actually created a new approach to strategy based on only looking a year out uh, because looking several years out today is just silly. So uh, I'm going to continue to write. I'm going to continue to, to host experiences around the world and and to put out my podcasts and and videos and so on. Uh, you know, I do a, a daily minute with Alan. You know, <laughs> they said people need a brief. I got a brief. It's a minute. Uh, but, you know, uh, I'm smart enough also to realize that you never know what's around the corner and I'm ready to take advantage of it if it makes sense. Absolutely. That's great. Well, I want to thank you for being with us and I wish we could go a, a bit longer. Um, I uh, recently heard someone refer to you. Uh, I think it was at a, a workshop uh, that um, you were that you were leading um, and um, they refer to you as the godfather of consulting. <laughs> got kind of pondering that and, and I got thinking about it and I, I came to the conclusion that I think that that's right on. Here's why. Because in our, in our Catholic Christian tradition, a godfather is someone who sponsors, who encourages, who guides another towards fulfillment of who they are called to be. And I think as a consultant, as a mentor, as an author, as an encourager uh, to so many people over the year, you have done that. I know you've done that for me. And I'm confident that you've done that for so many others. And so I really want to thank you for being with us today and to thank you for the investment that you make in other people. So thank you. Well, that's very, that's very kind of you and generous. And let me just say to your listeners that uh, if you like free videos and audios and newsletters and text, go to alanweiss.com and uh, it, you're, you're welcome to it. Excellent. And we're going to put a, a link to that website in our podcast notes. And um, as all of our full service coaching clients know uh, many of Alan's books are uh, available um, and recommended by us. And uh, I know, I think I'm up to 22 of your books. Wow. Wow. I still have quite a few more to read. As I say, I can't keep up with them. You keep publishing another one and it's like, oh my goodness, I'm never going to catch up here. But uh, well, I, I tell people I go for volume, not accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've hit both uh, <laughs> on the ones that I've read. So once again, thank you so very much for, for being with us. And so I encourage you to tune in with us next week for another episode of our podcast and check our blog and our website, phoenixlifecoachingcanada.com for lots of great tools and resources. And I encourage you to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter where we post daily. And if you're on LinkedIn, where you can connect with us there. And for our full service coaching clients, make sure to go to your Make It So platform for lots of extra notes and links uh, based on this podcast. All right, until we get together next week for another episode, start living in a way today that will help you to thrive tomorrow. And remember that you can make it so.